Intuit developers are using AI, data, and open source to power prosperity for millions of consumers and small businesses around the world. Learn more about how Intuit is building an AI-driven technology platform at intuit.com slash stackoverflow. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I'm your host, Ben Popper, joined as I often am by my colleague, Ryan Donovan. And today we have a very special guest, Will Falcon, who is the creator of PyTorch Lightning. Ryan and I have been learning a bit about PyTorch as we work on getting ourselves up to speed with everything Gen AI and where it might fit into the future of the Stack Overflow business and public platform knowledge community. So excited to chat today about someone who's building tools that lots and lots of developers are using. Will, welcome to the program. Ben, Ryan, thank you guys for having me on the the show. Very excited to uh, hopefully share some uh, fun AI facts with you guys today. (laughs) Sweet. So Will, for people who don't know, just tell them a little background. This project uh, came out of work you did both as a student at NYU and a researcher at Facebook. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it, it started much earlier when I was an undergrad at uh, Columbia around 20, I would say, 15, 2014, 15. But I didn't open social until 2019. And I mean, you know, I, I really got it scaling when I was at Facebook AI, right? Like uh, we were training models on thousands of GPUs and there were like 10 people at fair mm-hmm. so half half of them are a character ai today and the other are, are like in different startups so like i think mo- most of us have left um it's up to the hardcore researchers but yeah you know we're pushing the boundaries of scaling uh models back then and um, put a lot of knowledge into pytorch lightning and uh, it's kind of become come to think that kind of the standard for that today right it's funny because in 2019 we were training models on like 2000 gpus in the facebook cluster and Today, people are like, how do I train on 60 GPUs? It's like, well, you know, you can't just you build that on your own. And you, you guys as developers know, Lightning is kind of like React, and then PyTorch is kind of like JavaScript. Like, mm. where that stage, if you guys remember when React and Angular came out, everyone built their own versions of it. <laughs> That's kind of the, the stage that we're in today. Although people are now realizing that they shouldn't build their own version all the time. <laughs> right. Just get the right tools. Get something that makes it simpler for you to train it up. Yeah, but you know, it's it's just like natural thing that engineers have, which is like, mm-hmm. I need full control of the system. It's like you do, but like, do you really need to implement Redux from scratch every time because you want to build a new website? Like, that's kind of silly, right? <laughs> right, right. So when you were creating this, you were solving some of your own pain points. Like, how did you scratch an itch that led to something which, as you said, now you know has been touched by so many people through the open source community? Yeah, you know, I I hope that more people kind of start things this way like I, I was a grad student and i don't know I, I like ever since i started writing software i've always like wanted to reuse everything i built so pretty much i'm open source pretty much everything so for me you know my my reasons are always like really organic like give back to the community like if i'm going to take the time to solve a problem once like why not let other people reuse it and so it just happens to be that this happened to be a problem that a lot of people had, right? But I mean, I've open sourced thousands of things that didn't take off either. What I find sad now is that because there's like VC money and, and other stuff involved, a lot of people are like mm-hmm. using open source as a distribution mechanism for business reasons instead of like 
an actual innate want to give back to the community, right? Mm-hmm. So for better or for worse, that's how Lightning was born. And, and largely today, that's still how we operate because we make money in other ways on, the, on our product. We don't need to like monetize the open source side of it. It's just how we, we want to enable you guys to you know get the same scaling and not have to do a PhD like we all had to to learn these things, right? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So you founded a, uh, a company that's doing tooling for the AI ecosystem. Um, and we talk a lot about AI here. And I think there's, you know, a little bit of AI fatigue going on. Where where are we in the, the hype cycle, do you think? Man, I hope it's over, though. Oof, we're all fatigued <laughs> by it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, you know, I, I'm not going to throw shade at people, right? I think there are some cool, cool new entrants in the field, and I, I welcome everyone to join. I think a lot of us have been doing this for a long time. Like, I mean, I, I got into mm-hmm. AI probably 2013, 2014, like the first time before any of these things existed. And I think today the AI hype cycle is at the disillusionment phase where, and by the way, I think these mm-hmm. models are great. And then they try to use them in something real and it didn't really work, right? Because it is very hard to scale these things. I mean, I, I've deployed systems, you know, before I was an AI as, as a software engineer and deploying a, a regular like web app, it's not terribly complicated. You have microservices, you do horizontal scaling, like you, you know, beef up instances when you need to. But in AI, it doesn't kind of work that way because AI has different patterns that you don't have in regular software. Like your code could still work, but the model could still crash because, you know, there's a gradient or something weird. There's like math involved. Maybe your math is wrong. Mm-hmm. The data is wrong, right? So it's less deterministic than software. So I think that software engineers coming into it now are like, a little bit upset about that because they're like, oh my God, it's not translating. And it probably won't because it is a very different paradigm, 100%. Right. Mm. That makes sense. One of the things we wanted to discuss with you along with where we sit in the hype cycle was how you think about evaluating the quality of output. So, you know, something Mm. Ryan and I have been thinking a lot about is, let's say you're at a company where your developers have embraced code generation inside of the IDE, they have assistants who are doing stuff for them. How do you go about you know, evaluating? Is this adding to productivity or developer experience, making them happier versus is this introducing security risks or you know, flaws and, and, and sort of bugs in the code that mean we're actually going to have to work harder or we're not saving any time at the least? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm, I'm very bullish on very good developers augmenting with AI. I'm mm-hmm. not super bullish on okay newish developers augmenting with AI <laughs> because they tend to just get lied to by the model. You know, I, I use ChatGPT all the time for random things. Mm-hmm. Like I'm still CEO, but like I still code and everyone at Lightning does, right? So I'll, I'll randomly jump on the front end or like back end or ML. And uh, I'm not a, like up to speed with the latest documentation of everything. So like if I want to do something weird in React, I'm not going to sit here and like read about it. I'm going to ask ChatGPT to give me some sample code. But the code that it gives me, I know when it's good or bad because I know how it's supposed to be done, right? But if you're a new developer, you're just going to copy it. And I see it sometimes with our newer engineers. I'm like, I know this is not written by you because it's like too over-engineered and a little bit too complicated, right? So mm-hmm. I think you can probably measure it like your 10x engineers, how much X do they get because mm-hmm. of this? I think a lot, right? You can measure that in, in more PRs in faster time to land in like the kind of standard engineer metrics that we measure, right? And hopefully reducing like surface area, minimizing the code, making things simpler. You can measure most of those things through GitHub, right? Like I think very objective measures there. Uh, on newer developers, I think if if you can teach them to use it as a way to mentor them, then you can teach their ability to get caught up in a new system 
faster. Like you had a developer that joined and didn't use it versus one who did, how much quicker were they able to like know the system and be able to be productive? PRs that land without regressions, right? So so there are a few of these metrics there. My favorite is always tracking things based on pull requests at the end of the day. Like that's what matters. I don't care about your planning, any of this. It's like, what did you ship? How quickly did it land? That's it. <laughs> mm-hmm. What do you think uh, the knowledge gap between that okay engineer and that senior engineer using ChatGPT, what's what's the thing that gets the senior engineer to use it better? The experience of knowing how it's done in other languages. Like if, if you're a good engineer or experience, you may not need to know the details about a language, but you know the basic structures. You know that there are control flows. You know that there are bad practices around global variables. There's all these like standard things that we all know, right? And, and so th- they'll be able to just like translate maybe it's a, a good uh, analogy like it's like an english lawyer using a translator for french like they're gonna do a mm-hmm. great job because they already know the law right but having someone who speaks english try to do law in french that's not a lawyer like you can see how that's not gonna work right <laughs> right right yeah yeah i think i like that analogy it would sort of be like listen i went to law school and i work in commercial real estate law but if my cousin needs some help with the contract you know I, i'll i'll be able to look over and understand it cuz i speak legalese right like i understand certain right. things and that's how the demands develop exactly yeah so one of the things that you uh, had suggested we talk about which i thought was really interesting was the idea that ai developers and companies need to be open on the data that their their models are trained on so you know, there are models, obviously, that share the data and sometimes share the weights, sometimes not. And then there are models, right, that are completely closed. What's important to you about, you know, understanding the data and why would that be important to just, right, a developer is using it as a tool to produce new output and, you know, why, why do they need to know what's under the hood? I, th- I think there are two sides to that, like the open source versus within a company, right? Mm-hmm. I think it all comes down to liability at the end of the day. If you're using an open source model and you don't know what that data was trained on and then you use it in a company and then they get sued and then it turns out that they get subpoenaed and they create a bunch of bad data and now that model is void and you build a bunch of enterprise systems, you could be liable too, right? So transparency at the end of the day, right? It's it's the thing that's going to keep your business from going out. I know a lot of enterprises that won't use open source models that they don't know what the data, um, how it's trained because of that liability, right? Like... It may not matter to like a seed stage startup, but it matters to like a JP Morgan Chase, right? Or like a massive enterprise. They're not going to expose themselves to that liability. So that's the first thing. Then the second thing is around internally at your company, let's just say that you have full control over the data and you're training your own models, which I think most people should do. Then uh, it's, it's going to come down to like the biases that are introduced into the system, right? Uh, you don't want like racist chatbots or, or sexist mm-hmm. or any of these kind of things, right? So I think transparency across the org for this will allow more eyes on what's actually going into the model and help those who know, like researchers, like tell you, hey, like this is how you should be creating these things. It's funny because right. data scientists have been saying that is all that matters for like ever. And deep learning people were like, nah, models are all that matter. I think deep learning people were still like, models are all that matter. But now we're like, oh, actually that is all that matters <laughs> to some yeah. extent, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where, where do you get that model, right? right. Yeah, yeah the exactly. <laughs> and, and I saw it during my PhD as well. Like th- there was a model we were working on at Facebook and there's this uh, it's contrastive learning and, and there was a model that got pushed by Google, something called Simclear. And, um, you know, I, I ran like very thorough hyperparameter searches on a competing model to it. And the hyperparameter searches test the different configuration of the model, right? Like batch size five versus 10 versus whatever. Mm. And I, I sort of got, I used thousands of GPUs to like figure this out. 
And I found the exact values of like the transform coefficients and the normalizing coefficients for like the RGB values or whatever. And I tried thousands of, if not like maybe hundreds of thousands of combinations. And the values that I got were exactly the values that they published in the Google paper. And it was like, I mean, whoever did that at Google must have done thousands of experiments to get there. And if you drop mm-hmm. that out of your model, your model will not do well. Like you needed mm-hmm. that particular transform pipeline, not like a different one, like a very specific one to get that model to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what mm-hmm. you're saying is super interesting to us. And I think, you know, we hope will be highly valuable to Stack Overflow going forward, which is like the quality of data matters maybe more than mm-hmm. hardware or algorithmic optimization, at least at the moment. I heard the guy from Microsoft Research who created the Phi models talking about this. And he said, look, I spent years, you know, trying to crank out advancements in other ways, like you said, tuning models or, you know, coming at it from mm-hmm. different angles. And we found that if we, train the model on high quality data, we could get a thousand X and nothing else is giving us that kind of jump. So until somebody shows us a different way, you know, data quality mm-hmm. above all. Um, yeah. To get back to what you said earlier, I thought it was really interesting. You know, like we are in this wild west stage and Ryan and I have done some interviews with folks. We talked to IBM, their approach is we're going to tell you exactly what's in this model. And that way, if you use it, you have that governance and that trust, which I thought was super interesting. And then other big companies are saying, we're going to assume the legal risk for you, right? Like, we'll take the liability if you get sued, which, you know, kind of muddy. We're not really sure how that's all going to work out. But yeah, people are aware of this challenge and confronting it in different ways. Your thoughts? I I mean, you can make all the promises you want, but can you actually keep that, like, even financially when it comes down to it, right? Like, I don't know. In the crypto world, you have FTX uh, took on a bunch of risk and now they're all in jail. (laughs) (laughs) That's quite a comparison. Okay. I mean, yeah, it, I think it's it's different when you have these behemoth companies that have been around for decades as opposed to like oh, yeah. some upstarts. Uh, yeah. Sure, if Microsoft takes on the risk, I trust it more, 100%. But like, yeah. would Microsoft not just like, I don't know, I'm not saying they would, but like if they have a subsidiary that's taken on the risk and then they get sued in the hundreds of billions and they have to pay, like, wouldn't they just be like, sorry, that thing's bankrupt now and you're all screwed? Like, I don't know if Microsoft right. would even try to right. pay. I mean, I do think, right, right, one thing that is going to be super challenging and we're hoping to talk to people about, as you're pointing out, is that we haven't really crossed the bridge too much because there hasn't been like a huge M&A deal or a public offering where suddenly this became the hiccup. But a lot of very intelligent people who are looking at this are saying people are going to get caught up in this, right? If you can't speak to where your code was licensed or how it was created, you know, you're going to come to issues and due diligence that are going to bite you. And so I actually think it's interesting for me that was originally I was thinking, okay, that means like you probably shouldn't use Gen AI. But also an interesting approach, like you pointed out, is just either have built the model yourself and know where the data comes from, mm-hmm. or you know, go right, go with somebody who's willing to to open the curtain that way. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's interesting because from the research side, I don't know, like I, I create content and I would want my content to be used to train models, but there are times where I don't also. So like I see both sides. Mm-hmm. And you know, for example, Stack Overflow to me is a really good resource. Obviously, we all learned at some point using it. And I don't think that it's right to just grab all that and train models and then do different like financial benefits. Maybe the, the, it's a financial part of it that kind of bothers mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. I feel right. like for science, I would be, we have no problem with it. But like when companies then use that to exploit and financially make money, that's right. an issue where it's like, well, why not the company that has that data? Why don't they benefit from it? Right? I mean, yeah. they worked hard for it, right? Yeah. I mean, you make an interesting point. There's nothing like, you know, for us to sort of discuss on this front, except what we've said already publicly, which is we hope that as this industry matures, the companies that train on our data would utilize some of their resources 
and invest that back in the knowledge community so that Stack Overflow can keep growing, people can keep yeah. contributing here, and the AI can continue to learn, right? Like, if it doesn't have humans generating novel ideas, you know, will it continue to improve or will it actually sort of degrade over time? Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, co- code is being outdated too, right? Like, I, I see this all the time with our open source libraries. If you try to use ChatGPT for Python sliding, it, it's not going to be the most accurate because it's using old versions, right? So right. code is changing all the time. And I think one nice thing about Stack Overflow, I mean, I guess I could keep rescraping, but it's kind of annoying, is that, mm-hmm. you know, as long as people are interacting and they're asking the right questions, they're pushing the new kind of code and they're testing and stress testing it and finding issues with it. Mm-hmm. If, if you stop that dialogue and all you do is rely on chat API, like I could see you having issues. Like, you know, we have plenty of Lightning users asking questions like Overflow, then we go answer, other people answer, and they keep exchanging that. If all you're using is chat GPT now, then... Yeah, I mean, are we going to get those problems like sorted right. out? I don't know if we would. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just going to be a, a closed loop, right? No yeah. new data, no new solutions. Yeah, I've, I've described it as like a, you know, sort of a tragedy of the commons, right? If a lot of people are getting faster answers whenever they want from a, an AI assistant, as opposed to having to work hard on a question and wait, you know, a bit on Stack Overflow, it feels great for them. But with if, right, as you said, the knowledge about something like Lightning AI isn't updated mm-hmm. because suddenly everybody's not contributing, you know, then on the next iteration of the model, everybody loses out. Yeah. I kind of wanted to jump back to something you said earlier that everybody should train their own models. Do you think they should train them from the ground up or, or should they fine-tune existing models? Um, it just depends. I mean, I think like the research in me says you should train it from scratch mm-hmm. if you have the data, but it's not realistic for most people. So when I say train, I, I mean loosely like anything in training, fine-tuning, you know, what do you fine tune? Only one layer, all the layers are pre-training, right? The answer really comes down to like your budget and how much data you have. If you have a ton of data, you should be pre-training. And if you can afford it, if you don't have that much data, you can fine tune. And if you can't really afford it, fine tune as well. But it doesn't get rid of this liability problem. I think, I mean, I haven't seen a lawsuit go to the Supreme Court yet, but like if I take Llama 2 weights and then I fine tune it and then I, I overfit it to my data, um, Llama's not a good example, but let's say there there's another model that like was trained on on bad data, like they, they might get sued. And then I fine-tune on that, like the changing the weights change the liability, like the data is still embedded mm-hmm. in the weights. And I used it to to jumpstart the ne- next model. It's not right. cl- that's a legal question to me, right? Like I'm not right. actually was sure. Was that transformative in some way so that you right. sort of you had cleared that hurdle? Yeah, I mean, it's a super interesting question. There are lawsuits uh, proceeding through the courts about whether or not it was acceptable, like you said, for big AI companies to train on open source data. And so, yeah, we're going to have to wait to see. In the meantime, I want to get back to what you said. Ryan and I were trying to work out a flowchart the other day that's sort of like, all right, you want to add Gen AI to your organization. Do you have a data science team or ML expertise? Great. Maybe you should build a model. You don't? All right. Well, maybe you should work with one of these third-party providers that lets you fine-tune or you know, mm. go on hugging face and see what's available. Okay, you you don't even feel comfortable with that. Maybe you should just take an existing model and do some retrieval augmented generation with your data, right? Like, how do you think about that sort of build versus buy analysis these days? Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, obviously what what I'll say here is bias because we have a platform to do a lot of these things here, right? So I want to preface it with that. No, no, talk your book. That's okay. Well, first, tell (laughs) us your unbiased and then feel free to, yeah, talk, talk about how you solve these kind of problems for people. Sure. And I think on the open source, I mean, look, we try to, open source as much as we can, right? So we're, we're also trying to get back here. But even the flow that we suggest to to our users, right, is if you can get started, POC something with an API, you should, right? So go use ChatGPT, go use an open source model, 
on Lightning, you can do all of those and you can deploy like your own endpoints with like Mistral and all these different models, right? So I think that's a V1. You should do that to begin with, just to like sanity check what you're going to do. And like if it's, if it's going to solve some business problem or not. And that's like where you don't even need data scientists. You just need an engineer who can press a lighting and you just press a button, just run it and it's there, right? It's, a, it's like a fast API server. So you can configure it. So you don't need a lot of expertise to do this. Now, if you then need to elevate, then you need to elevate because you either the model's not working well for you. So you have a few avenues. Is the model wrong? Is the data wrong? And then how do you fix it, right? So you can kind of prompt your way into things, which is what a lot of these assistants are doing nowadays. You just like, preface your query with a bunch of problems like don't do this do this or whatever it's fine that's like the fastest cheapest way to do that and for everyone to have a mental model of like between pre-training and fine-tuning just think about this way how much of a model do you want to change if you want to change nothing about a model so from zero to one zero will be like pre-trained and one is like fine-tuned if you're changing nothing about a model that's one like it's a fine-tuning like literally changing a prompt is the simplest way to fine-tune where you're not changing anything about the model if you then take the last layer of a model and you freeze it and you only change that one, now you're fine-tuning a little bit. If you then do two layers or 10 layers or 20 or the embeddings or whatever, there's like an open science field about this, right? That gets to fine-tuning. If you unfreeze all the layers, that's pre-training. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. it's just a spectrum of how much are you freezing or not. And then it comes down to the data, right? Like if you're going to freeze all the weights, then the question becomes like, you know, do you unfreeze all the weights or do you just create a new model from scratch that has random weights, right? And which one's going to give you better performance? To get random weights to work well, you need a lot of data because the model has to iterate a lot. So if you have enough data, you can get it to work. Now, if you don't have that much data, maybe you have a small model and maybe fewer weights can get you there, right? But I, I think people need to build this mental model of like, it is not pre-trained or fine-tuned. It's how much do you want to change of the model? The more you change, the closer you get to pre-training. The less you change, the closer you get to fine-tuning. It's a technicality, right? So it, ha- it has to do with, with those parameters. But I would say the simplest thing to not do anything is use an API, right? Or like deploy your model and then start deciding, okay, do I want to change the data? If so, how much do I have? If I have a little bit, then go ahead and change a little bit of the model and fine-tune it or take a small model and pre-train it on that, right? But it's, it's hard to tell. But those are the, the main variables that I would say. And then there's cost, obviously. I'm, I'm ignoring cost, but <laughs> the more right. you change of the model, the more expensive it will be because you have to train more parameters. Right, right, right. So, you know, we hear a lot about AI taking jobs, right? People are going to be replaced by AI. But, but what's on the other side? What are the jobs that would be created by AI? I mean, you, like, was prompt engineer a job a year and a half ago? No, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> There's right. A, like at least, I don't know, three or four jobs in AI that have been created because of this. Like, right. I mean, there was no notion of uh, vector databases before. Like if mm. two years ago, none of us were thinking about vector DBs, right? Oh. If you're doing basic ML before, you were like definitely comparing vectors and sorting them, sure. Now there's like more efficient algorithms and that's called the vector DB, right? Mm-hmm. So there are these things that are coming up, new technologies that's employing more people. There are all these curation people. They're like, hey, is this model bad or not? Red team. So there's a lot of like safety stuff happening. Those jobs did not exist years ago. So I, I would argue that at least in the tech side, we've created more jobs than we've lost. And mm. I think where we have seen a loss of jobs is like, I don't know, like editing type jobs where like you can use a chat GPT to like sanity check a sentence or a paragraph. And probably those people are no longer doing that. I mean, we've had massive tech layoffs as well in the last few years. Mm. And I'm not like a financial expert, I guess. I uh, just dabbled in finance for a bit. But, <laughs> but, you know, I think that all of that comes down to just improving your bottom line and being more efficient with what you're using. I argue that without AI, probably 
most of those jobs were not even needed in the first place, right? Like mm-hmm. the developers were just kind of coasting and not really doing a lot anyways. Right. So you have the financial system that's putting that pressure on there. I think it will create more jobs in the long term, and it's already proven to do that today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to think about like, what is your end-to-end you know, sort of team look like, or what does the headcount look like, right? You know, like you said, do I need a ML and a data quality specialist? Do I need someone who knows embedding? Do I need someone who knows vector DB? Do I know someone who needs RAG? I need safety and security. I need red teaming. I need a lawyer who knows this stuff, right? I mean, like there's a lot of people all along the, the pipeline from ideation to production that need to have new and specialized skills. Yeah, but this, I think this is where open source can come in, right? Like, I think a lot of these tools are are keeping people from having to build a lot of these things in house. Mm-hmm. I think the problem that I see is like, uh, you know, engineers we're curious, right? So we want to know how things, even researchers, and this need to like try to build everything yourself is it's kind of what's causing a lot of this bloat, right? You don't need to, and mm-hmm. I think we all learned that from doing. You know, I went through the mobile boom, right? Having to code iPhone apps and that kind of stuff to the web boom, to like, you know, Ember and like Angular and all these weird uh, frameworks. Although I still love Angular. Everyone hates it, but I don't know why. (laughs) Shout out Angular. And then everyone's kind of converged on these few tools, but like, you know, there were plenty of people that I, at the time I was at Goldman, like there were plenty of engineers who were like sitting there writing their own like Redux from scratch. And like, you maybe needed it at the time because you didn't trust the, the systems that were in place. But like, those jobs don't exist today. Like, I would be crazy if you're like, yo, you need your own like, you Redux engineer, I'd be like, no, you don't. <laughs> yeah, there, I don't think there are many many shops that uh, create everything from scratch, except for uh, a particular financial company. I think creates <laughs> everything from scratch. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think you mentioned earlier on in the conversation that people got really excited. You know, obviously, ChatGPT kind of took the world by storm and captured its imagination as a consumer facing app, but. Um, when people try to put this stuff into practice, they found out like how easy is this to use? How often does it work without causing errors? And you know, how much value am I really generating out of this? So when you think about it, what percentage of, of companies do you feel like are growing a little bit disillusioned? And maybe since you obviously have clients who are trying to do this stuff through your platform, where do you see it working in the enterprise? And where do you think it's going to get traction over the next year or so? Yeah, I think companies are still excited by the prospect. I think they're growing disillusioned by the inability to make it happen and to put it into production. And largely it's because it's a kind of like a new paradigm and re-education of the system. And you're you're trying to use there's a term called software 2.0 that Carpathy coined. I don't know if you guys have read his his blog. And um and kind of the way I think about it is this is my interpretation of it, not his. To me, software one or app one, I guess, would be like web development mm-hmm. and like kind of the stuff that we all know how to do, right? And then there's app two and software two, which is like deep learning. And he means it in the context of differentiable programs. I mean it in the context of how you should develop systems in general. And and I think that software one is something where your laptop was okay. You could do it on your laptop. And we all do. Our, our workflows are like, hey, you code locally and then you submit to a server and it runs. And AI and kind of the approach that we've taken the platform is you code on the cloud, everything. Everything is on the cloud. You you may type the keys from your laptop on a IDE on your laptop, but it's all remote servers, right? A virtual desktop. And we did that because what we found is putting terabytes of data on your laptop and GPUs on your laptop was terrible. And you're trying to replicate a local <laughs> to cloud environment doesn't work, right? And so you're like, wait, it works mm-hmm. here, but it doesn't work. So you submit a job, you wait 30 minutes, it crashes, you debug, and you're in the loop for hours. So we said, just do it on the on the cloud. And so I I personally think that that's going to be the future, right? And I think that that's how people are going to to work in general. 
so that solves a lot of these like putting into production problems. But I think the more that people are still mm-hmm. trying to be wedded to this like local to cloud workflow, they're going to keep continuing to be the solution. So I say all that because back to your question, you can't take practices from software 1.0 and try to apply them for software 2.0. It's not going to work. It's a different paradigm. That's it. It's, it's like yeah. altogether, you're trying to use tools that we all learned from a different time to solve a different problem that just right. requires different tooling. Yeah. All right. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think what you say certainly makes sense to me. I'm not here to evaluate it, but the idea that like, right, in software 2.0, if, you know, the sort of engine behind what we're doing is AI ML, then it is way more hardware and data intensive than what we used to do. And you're going to want, like you said, terabytes of data and a dedicated GPU cluster. And I'm sure somebody's working on it, but that's not on your laptop yet, right? Like I'm sure somebody's working on a, (laughs) you know, in fact, I know people are working on like, you know, specific silicon you know, that's built from the ground up to be great for these kind of, you know, jobs or whatever. Mm-hmm. But we're quite far away from that being something that's in mass production. Yeah, and I also argue it's more collaborative, to your point. Like, even if you had a laptop, you know, you still need to work with a data engineer, you still need to work with a data scientist, you still need to work mm-hmm. with a product person, you still need to work with a researcher. So many jobs. So many jobs yeah. for people. <laughs> <laughs> more more jobs being created. I'm telling you, it's not that positive. Right. No, I, I have to agree with you that the layoffs, I think, are have way more to do with the end of the zero interest rate period and the you know inflection back to five percent and companies just responding to that and, and wanting to, you know, mm-hmm. please the stock market than anything else. And, you know, like I said to Ryan the other day, I, I have talked to people who have been engineering managers at large companies. And when interest rates were zero and what people wanted to see was growth. It was okay to have engineers on staff making six, seven-figure salaries who took six-month sabbaticals between projects, basically. They were just like on the shelf until you wanted to assign them to the next you know, feature within, a, mm. within an app that you had. And that was okay for those companies now. And that they realized like, now is the time to sort of change the dynamic within a corporate organization like Silicon Valley. Yeah, I come from the military. I was in special operations before uh, doing the civilian thing. And uh, in the SEAL teams, you're obviously trained to have tiny Mm -hmm. teams and very, very, very good people. And you don't ever have access to Slack because military has no money, right? (laughs) So you got to do what you can. Uh, It was a shocker to me to go to the civilian world. And I'm like, what are these people doing? They're like doing like 30% work. Like, why are they here? (laughs) (laughs) So I hope people adopt more of that mentality. I think it's uh, generally a good, good, good call. Yeah, I think SEAL Team and Silicon Valley, those are two polar opposites on the the workplace. So (laughs) maybe you should write a book about that. A lot of ideas translate. We uh, we run the company internally, like the the SEAL teams, which is good. Right. It seems to resonate with the developers. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I, I'd love to have you back to talk about just that, or maybe we'll do a, a blog post together someday or something. That's an interesting idea. Yeah, sounds good. All right, everybody. Uh, it is that time of the show. Let's shout out somebody who came on Stack Overflow and shared a little knowledge. Today, I want to give a shout out to Brian. Six one three four five two seven zero. The module was not found in Python three point one two, but Brian knows how to make the module appear for you, and has helped over seventeen thousand people. So, Brian, you're a lifesaver. Congrats on your lifeboat badge. I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Exit Ben Popper. If you want to come on the show or ask us some questions or just rant and rave, email us podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you enjoy the show, then you can leave us a rating and a review. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find it at stackoverflow.blog. And if you want to reach out to me on X, my handle is rthordonovan.
I'm William Falcon. I'm the creator of PyTorch Lightning and uh, founder of Lightning AI, which is a company behind PyTorch Lightning and, and Lightning Studios, our kind of cloud products. And you can find me on Twitter on Will Falcon or GitHub. Uh, sadly, I have to be on social media a lot these days, but I prefer to <laughs> to just talk to you guys through GitHub, but it's fine. <laughs> so you can All find right. me at uh, underscore Will Falcon on, on Twitter. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.